The David Cassidy Connections with Louise Poynton. Hello, everyone, and welcome. My guest today is Philip Clark, who has been an ardent fan of David Cassidy since October 1973. On the cusp of becoming a teenager, at the time he was living in South Sea in England when David released his Dreams and Nothing More Than Wishes album. Having also lived for a time in Singapore and Malta, today Philip lives in Australia, which is by far his most enduring home. Philip describes himself first and foremost as a family man, husband, father, and a very proud grandfather. Music in particular has been, for him, a lifelong passion and creative form of expression. Philip plays the piano, studied singing, and regularly performs as a singer. Creating vocal and orchestral arrangements is a singing and performance coach and musically directed a number of musical and cabaret shows in Sydney. David Cassidy has been a strong source of inspiration and influence in different aspects of Philip's life. And he is with me today to share what this deep connection has meant to him. Welcome, Philip. Hello, Louise. So good to be with you. Thank you. Would you ever have imagined the respect you have for David and love for his music would one day influence your life to the extent it has? No, I don't think so. Um, I think when I became present to the fact that he's an artist that I really admire, it kind of took me by surprise because it wasn't that I was unaware that David Cassidy existed, but he was definitely passing me by. And certainly as a young teen living in England back then, you know, it wasn't the, the done thing that, you know, a, a young teenage boy would get drawn to someone like David Cassidy. But I did. And uh, it came as a bit of a surprise to me at the time, I remember. But once I was hooked, I was hooked and suddenly became really present to this magnificent talent, his voice, the impact that his music suddenly started having on me. And I think, you know, I think it's the benefit of hindsight that allows me to say this now. I don't think I realised this then, but I was, as you said in the intro, on the cusp of being a teenager and clearly looking for a role model. And what David Cassidy represented to me was an incredibly successful artist. Uh, he kind of looked like, um, at least in terms of what was portrayed in the media, you know, and how we interpret things through the media. To me, what he represented was someone I'd like to be, someone I could have as a role model. I didn't think of it as lucidly as that as a young teenager then, but, but certainly that's what he was. And it, it just became a, a, a haven for me. And I think, you know, I've, I've been reflecting, you know, what was I going to share with you as we came to this podcast? You know, one of the mantras of my life is don't tell me that I can't, right? If you tell me that I can't, I'll show you that I can. And I think there might've been an element of that in choosing David Cassidy as opposed to any other artist. But nevertheless, at the time, whilst I really greatly admired his talent, I had no sense that in, in the years to come, it would be something that would continue to impact my life, to inspire me, to uh, bring me hope, to bring me solace when I felt sad, um, to be, you know, just a, a place of um, quiet reflection and, and all of that. I just really um, was taken by the impact that he had on me. You mentioned there about his, the impact of his music. Was it really his solo work that introduced you to him as opposed to the music 
of the Partridge family? Certainly. I mean, again, you know, when I think back, yes, of course, I was aware the Partridge, of the Partridge family. I'd probably seen a couple of episodes here and there. It was at the time that I saw those episodes, it was kind of interesting TV, but nothing impactful. So it was definitely David Cassidy's solo work that reached out to me and right collection of songs, right time in an impressionable young boy's life, that, that collection of songs on the Dreams of Nothing More Than Wishes album said something to me that I needed to hear, I guess. And I, um, you know, there are obviously in the Partridge Family catalogue of songs, a number of songs that I, I really love, you know, like most fans do. But even to this day, I, I tend not to listen to Partridge Family albums so much. I'll choose the songs that I like rather than the albums, whereas... David's body of work, I have listened backwards and forwards and every possible combination of which, like just over and over and over and over and over again over the years. So to whatever extent it was true in the early recordings and hopefully more so in the later recordings, for me, when he was being David Cassidy and singing David Cassidy, then there was an element of authenticity in there and maybe he yearned for more and maybe he got closer to his authentic self as the years went on. But certainly, you know, if you go right back for me, right back to the very first album, Cherish, which I then discovered retrospectively, it's a great body of songs. And, you know, some people even describe Cherish as a, a quasi Partridge family album, but I, I don't agree. I think it's, it's, it's much more than that. Um, and, you know, like one of the earliest recordings there on that very album is, you know, the song, I Am A Clown incredibly deep and impactful and theatrical and emotional recording for an artist. And, and I recall as a young lad, that was one song that just spoke to me. I think it said something for me, helped me understand what I was potentially struggling with and trying to find my place like all teenagers do in the world. Um, yeah, so right from the get-go, it was there and it was David. It was David, for sure. He clearly helped you to redefine yourself as a teenager, oh, find sure. your identity. Yes. Can you recall any moment he really arrived on your radar? I think, you know, I, like I'm able to explicitly say October 1973. I was almost 13. I turned 13 in December. October 1973 was when there was the big daydream of puppy song had been a massive hit. Then that out came the album that also went to number one. And suddenly he just landed as a presence in my life. My pathway to, to David actually was through my best mate at high school, who interestingly was also a major David Cassidy fan and a guy like me. And it wasn't the done thing to be a guy and a David Cassidy fan, which I'll just divert for a second. I have a theory around that. I, my theory in retrospect is that David Cassidy had such an impact on the girls of the United Kingdom, which was my frame of reference back then, that it left guys nowhere to go. You know, the girls that they were interested in were interested in David Cassidy. And, you know, and if you didn't look a bit like David, then they probably weren't going to be interested in you. So I think it was like a counter backlash. I could be wrong, but that's my theory. Anyway, I remember Robert Butcher was his name, and we're still friends to this day. Bob and I uh, became friends when I joined high school, and, and then I discovered he liked David Cassidy, and it was like, really? Okay, fine. So I already knew that he was a fan, and I, I don't know to what extent that influenced me, but then this, this body of work arrived, and all of a sudden, I just went from, oh, David Cassidy is someone that Bob likes, to, hang on a second, 
wow, like this is really, really incredible. And I listened to the songs and then I just became intensely interested, not only in the songs, but in him as an artist, you know, who was he? What did he represent to me? And what he represented to me was, you know, he was a popular figure. He was clearly good looking. He clearly, at least in terms of a media presence and how he was portrayed, would have no issues in having friends and attracting girls and being the popular guy and, you know, and that was everything I wanted to be. And who, want, who wouldn't want to be a kind of a kind of a rock star, cool guy, friends galore, girls galore. Like it just, that aspect of who he was just imprinted on me. Um, but it was accompanied by the music. And when I would listen to the music and like any dramatic young teenager, I would listen to music in the dark and, you know, see the funny little clown and all that kind of stuff or can't go home again or sing me or, you know, it was just my heart. It just, it was singing my heart. And I, I wanted to have what he had. I wanted to experience what he said to me through his music. Um, and, and, and it was from then on really. Um, Any particular yeah. songs within the, the dreams album that were significant for you? Um, can't Go Home again became a significance. I loved that song from the get-go, but it became really significant for me when we came to Australia because I did not want to come here. Did not want to come here. Um, so that, that was a very deep and personal song for me. Um, Sing Me, this, the autobiographical song that Tony Ramirez wrote for David to record on that album, I thought was a really beautiful song. Uh, of course, you know, there's the heart-rendering, um, you know, Daydreamer. Look, I, I, if I keep going, I'll probably mention every song on the album, but I think they're probably the, the three standout ones, most especially. For me, you know, one of the accusations thrown at David at that time and around his career around that time was, you know, like he was just a dismissible artist. He was a, a bubblegum artist. And yet those songs, that music, the way they were recorded and put together and the way that he performed them, were sophisticated and I think actually even to this day you know like I have maturity now I have insight now and and to me they still stand the test of time as a as a you know discrete body of work that is as credible as anything that was regarded as credible at that time but they're, they're, they're probably the three main songs do I you hear. consider him underappreciated as an artist yeah I do I do I don't get, you know, there, there are a number of artists who've been down this pathway where they, they start out and, they, and their impact is clearly with teenagers and in particular girls. You know, you could look at the Beatles and Elvis before David and say the same, that, that you know, in their early concerts, especially when you look at photographs and see video footage of those concerts, it's predominantly screaming girls. And so there was that, that dynamic, that relationship going on for them, but they were able to transcend it. And... And I think the argument that people would like to run as to why they were able to transcend it is because they were talented. And, and therefore, by implication, somehow David Cassidy wasn't talented enough, which I personally completely refute. I, I don't know what it was about David's experience that made it different to the experience that they had, but it seemed to me, even when I look back, that he, he rode that wave, but then when he decided to, to you know, call it quits and, and put a, 
line in the sand over that part of his career, instead of the industry getting around him and saying, okay, well, what's this guy going to do next? You know, it seemed to me they completely cut him out. So um, the Beatles were allowed to evolve, Elvis was allowed to evolve, but David wasn't. So even in the, it seems to me, therefore, that in the minds of industry, he wasn't allowed to um, evolve. You know, I, I agree wholeheartedly, Elvis Presley, the Beatles and others like them who've survived the test of time, extraordinarily talented um, artists and very creative and all of those things. But I've, I've always found it very frustrating, you know, like one of the reasons I think they remain in consciousness today is because they're still played on the radio. Like you can turn on any radio at any time and you'll almost guarantee to hear Rolling Stones and the Beatles and an Elvis and, and an Elton John and a, a whoever, right? But, but again, David Cassidy's body of work wasn't given that same respect. So it's not surprising that to a large extent, except from his hardcore fans, he disappeared from people's consciousness. I mean, when I came to Australia, he was still quite popular. In fact, Australia is one of the few countries in the world that where every Partridge Family song and every David Cassidy song was a top 40 hit here. You know, in the UK, it was predominantly David Cassidy with a few Partridge Family. In the United States, it was predominantly the Partridge Family with a few David Cassidy. But here, they were all hits. So he was quite popular. But by the time we got to 1975, when I, I arrived in Australia at the end of 74, industry kind of just moved on and the RCA album started coming out and they, you know, Get It Up For Love, for example, almost became a top 40 hit. It was getting airplay, but then gone. And so for us in Australia who were fans, and back in then, of course, there was no internet, it was like David Cassidy disappeared. I remember saying this to David actually years later when I had the, the great honour and opportunity to meet him in, in Vegas, you know, and he'd not long since made the movie about his life. And I said to him, you know, like, the irony was that there you were, you were going for these auditions and you were getting rejected and, and everyone was saying, that's it, your career's over. And yet around the world, you had millions of fans who were desperately wondering where you were and nobody had any idea. Had the internet existed when David was around, things possibly could have been quite different because he'd have been able to continue to present himself to the world and market himself to the world. I'm sure his fame would have shifted. I'm sure there would have been a number of fans who moved on as inevitably happens but I think he might have actually been able to make that transition and have more sustained, sustained success had he been able to keep in the public eye. And he wasn't able to, to the extent that he needed, I think. Do you think that David realized deep down just how much he had touched people? I think he did. I know what he said to me and I, and I read, we've all read what he said, you know, he said, you know, things along the lines, I get it back every day. When I walk down the street and people walk up to me and say, man, you've got no idea how much you meant to me. And I can imagine how gratifying that would be for him as a human being and as an artist to hear that. But he didn't live it like we lived it. Like he lived his version of David Cassidy and David Cassidy mania. And we lived our version of it. And, you know, when, when, when he started impacting the world, he was uh, an actor trying to make his mark, who fell into music and then tried desperately to make his mark with, with that as well and had his own successes and frustrations with that. But then there were fans like you and me and, and millions of others who he represented something on a whole other level. And I, I, I've said this to you already, I'm not sure if I said it during this podcast, but 
I wish I had the chance to say to him, David, you described the impact the Beatles had on your life as a young teenager. And you've described what it meant to you to meet John Lennon and Paul McCartney and to play guitar in, in the bedroom with John Lennon and sing Paul McCartney's parts. That's what you mean to me. That's what you represent to me. Transformational, life-changing moment when you landed in my life. It changed my life in the same way the Beatles changed yours. So I think he got it as much as he could, but it's always through his eyes, isn't it? It's not through ours. The merchandise that surrounded him, the image... Yeah that was created yeah. was very appealing and very attractive to a yes. 9, 10, 11, early, yeah. early teenager. And of course, all that memorabilia is now considered priceless. Mm. Um, but I know you said just now that you do consider David was underappreciated. Do you think the danger was that nobody could look beyond that idolatry and the products that were produced with his face and likeness on. And that took away the recognition of his outstanding solo work that he so desperately wanted to be recognised for. Yeah, I, I, I think you've summed it up very well. I, you know, and I think David's on record in the past of saying this himself. He definitely became a commodity. And, I, and I've, I've reflected on this. I don't know what it is about an artist who has that kind of success, few though they've been. Like, there aren't too many who've had David's kind of success. Whilst that artist or David is everything to his fans, and clearly, on some level, he's everything to the people he's making money for. But anyone else who takes themselves remotely seriously can find a myriad of ways to dismiss him, right? He's not a genuine artist. He's manufactured. You can't take him seriously because girls don't come to listen to him in concert. They just come to scream. And as you also talked about then, all of the, the merchandising that just was everywhere whilst that on some level is a huge measure of success it also gave people who regard themselves as serious pundits the opportunity to just dismiss it it's just irrelevant if you're a if you're a teenage idol what do teenagers know and yet didn't rock and roll get birth in terms of its impact out of what it did for teenagers so the the, the people who were teenagers when they were elvis presley came out and when the beatles came out were, were now young adults and probably in industry writing criti criti critics and, and so on around different things, just, I think, dismissed it. And I, I, I don't understand that. You, you, I, I was reading recently, someone posted on one of the Facebook groups that we all belong to as well. It was a review, I think, of the Madison Square Gardens concert. I've read a number of different reviews and there's been some wonderful reviews. But this particular review, just totally, any reference to David in particular was was a, a, a dismissal. It was passable voice, did a reasonable performance. The majority of this article was around the money machine. How many hundreds of thousands of dollars were being generated out of merchandise? How many records were being sold? Um, how many people were at this concert and therefore what did that generate in, time, in terms of ticket sales? But none of that was being attributed to David. They're like they didn't, they didn't make all those observations and then turn around and say, and at, at, in the midst of all this, the reason all of this is happening is because this phenomenal young artist has reached a generation of people and this is the impact he's having. It was like, here, you know, it could, it could just as well have been somebody else or will be somebody else in a year or two's time. So yeah, I think absolutely underappreciated, definitely. 
and you only have to look at um, the serious artists that he worked with over the years, you know, um, Jerry Beckley from America, Brian Wilson from the Beach Boys, Paul McCartney, um, John Lennon even, and, and others, Elton John. Elton John, you know, when he realised that David Cassidy was perhaps not being taken as seriously as he could when they were both on tour in New Zealand, went on stage and played live for David. You know, so the people who critics regarded as credible artists, George Michael years later, thought David Cassidy was credible. They could see through it, but others didn't. And I think that was a huge contributing factor and it's inexplicable to me. Do you feel that if he hadn't been brought to our, our attention and exploded onto the world scene on the back of the Partridge family, he would actually be considered and regarded more as one of the greatest singers of our generation? I like to think that. I do. And, and I've, I've thought about that myself. I, my personal opinion is that it was inevitable that he would be successful. I think he had the talent. He had the credentials. He came from that family background. And, and he was definitely already on his way, as he said, to being a serious working actor. And I'm sure that if the Partridge family hadn't come along, he would have continued in that vein and possibly what might have come along instead might have been some credible movie roles or whatever. I like to think that he would have been successful. And I like to, th I would also like to think, given the things he said himself and about how important music was to him, that he would have at some point tried to find a vehicle for music. Now, will we ever know, would he have been as successful as an artist as he did become in the early 70s? You know, possibly, possibly not. But I do think that if, if he had entered music in a different way, and it would have probably been with some acting success behind him, which would have given him some clout, which probably would have allowed him to negotiate a different kind of scenario in the, in the recording studio around the kinds of songs he wanted to play and, and have people hear. Yeah, I do think he would have been regarded much more highly than he is. And, you know, a number of people have gone on record for saying that he is a seriously great singer. And he was. He was absolutely like a magnificent singer. Magnificent. Can you talk us through how David's music influenced you through the work you do? Yeah, Stratford Musical Society is definitely the main vehicle for the performing that I do and and I have other avenues as well but that's definitely the main one. I as a young lad even was always drawn to music and I think you know my earliest musical influence was actually Cilla Black from the 60s and the whole Mersey scene I was a obviously a young lad my mum was a huge Beatles fan, my elder brother was a huge Beatles fan, and I adored Cilla Black from the get-go. Music was always important to me, and what David Cassidy gave me was a focal point. And so then through my, through my teen years, and especially when I came to Australia, he was my musical expression. As a young lad, I sang in choirs and wanted to better myself as a singer. When I became much more intentional about being a singer, I used to listen to David, and I used to play vignettes of his songs and think how did he achieve that vocal sound how did he develop his voice that way what's he doing there you know how's he creating that and there are many 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 and david is definitely a great example of this singers who are natural singers but there are just as many artists if not most artists at some point have had vocal coaching and so 
by the time I was a, a young adult, I, I met my, my wife, we were both very young when we met, we were 19, we got married when we were 22. So that set me on a path in terms of you know, life's expectations, which I'm very grateful for. But musically, I still continued my dreams and I, and I studied singing through all of my 20s. But always in the back of my mind, it was, I couldn't emulate David, you know, his voice is his voice, my voice is my voice but I feel his presence when I sing and I feel his inspiration when I sing. And in later years, when I've had the chance to stage shows, I've staged cabarets and stuff and done vocal arrangements. I've taken the opportunity where I can to sing some of his songs and bring them to an audience. And it's given me great satisfaction. On the flip side of performing as well, not, well, not quite the flip side, but through musicals, you know, I've been involved in musicals, uh, both as a performer and as a director, a musical director. And, you know, so I've had opportunities for, to do things like Carousel in Oklahoma, which of course was Shirley Jones's big beginning. But I've also played the part of Joseph and the amazing Telecolor Dreamcoat. And, and I've musical directed three different productions of Jesus Christ Superstar, which David also did. Corny as this might sound, he was with me when I did those things. And, and especially Joseph. Joseph is, when I reflect on my performing, that role was just very, very special for a number of reasons. And one of them being, I finally had the chance to play a role that David had done himself. You know, so that made a great deal to me. And I tried to bring obviously my own essence as a performer into that, but I also tried, because I never saw David in it, except in some scratchy videos online, tried to imagine what he would have brought to that part. It's always there. It's always there as an influence for me, very much so. How important is his legacy to, to you? When I think about my funeral, I think about what David Cassidy's song Do I Want played. So as I leave this life, I want David there. This will sound a bit bizarre to a lot of people. My wife and I laugh about it. But in my wardrobe, I've got my amazing Technicolor dream coat. And I've said to my wife, I want to be buried in that, with that. And I want placed in my coffin something of David when I die. So that's, that's the end of my life. Right now, what's tremendously important to me is to have opportunities like this. I, I, get, I hopefully, hope it comes across. I get joy speaking about him. I've talked quite a bit in this podcast around the impact of his music, but I've, I've got lifelong friends that I met where the first thing we had in common was David Cassidy. You know, Robert Futcher, my, my mate in high school way back then, is still my friend today. My dearest friend living now in America, Jean Courtney Moore, you know, we were first introduced when I came to Australia. Oh, Philip, Jean Courtney saw David Cassidy in Sydney. Oh, she did not. Yes, I did. We've been friends ever since, you know, Jim, how can I not talk about Jim? Yeah. Jim and I, we, we met, we were referred to by a mutual pen pal in 1987. Um, and we've been great friends ever since. Uh, Angela Mosley, but she's someone I've met more recently, the most beautiful person and the greatest David Cassidy fan and then there are fans I've connected with you know through Facebook who I now regard as friends that's part of the legacy yes and what I'm trying to say there is that through David Cassidy not only is there whatever I drew out of the experience of allowing him into my life as an artist but I've had the the you know, the great honour to meet such incredible people who, yeah, David Cassidy was the first thing we had in common, um, but now we're great friends. Mm. And then even as I think about the experiences, you know, particularly when David finally got back to Australia, the first time I saw David perform was in the Cobra in Las Vegas um, in 
2000. That was the first time I'd ever seen him perform live. But the first time I ever saw him in concert live, because I was a bit too young and a bit too far away from London and Manchester to go and see him in England, was in the early 2000s in Australia. And um, my son, who um, is a great guitarist himself, Nicholas, you know, he came with me to two of the concerts and he was blown away by David. And my wife came with me to Melbourne and we had this fantastic experience in the David Cassidy mosh pit in Melbourne. Like I can just, there are, there are so many things that are either directly or indirectly related to David, you know, and I just, I feel grateful. I feel inspired. I feel uh, happy. Uh, it's just, unfortunately, I think just tinged with that sadness. I think we all feel that he died the way he did and when he did. Um, yes. But that notwithstanding, everything else, how remarkable. And, you know, clearly there are a number of other artists who have enjoyed great success. And, and in the world today, you know, you could rattle off names that we regard as superstars today. But there was something about that point in time and, and the impact that he had, which was just phenomenal. I mean, you know, even the, 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 the now in retrospect, looking at the ridiculous counter reaction that guys had, that says something about his impact. If David Cassidy was dismissible, guys wouldn't have cared less. Oh, so, you know, the girls like David, who cares? You know, I like Mud, I like Sweet, I like Alice Cooper, I like whoever, right? But guys actually had to hate David Cassidy. Such was his impact. They had to have an emotional reaction that was a counterpoint to what the girl's reaction was. That says something about his impact. Yes. And when, when, when David died, I mean, we, I think we all feared that it was going to happen. But sadly, you know, and again, you know, Australia and timing and stuff, for us here, it was the middle of the day. And I was at work and I had to uh, travel from one office to another uh, to go to a meeting and, and the news came over and I just, I wanted to weep. I really did want to weep in that moment. And I had to hold myself together and I had to sit through this excruciating meeting that I couldn't have cared less about. But like you, I think when I, when I got home and, and then of course it was all over the news. And again, can I just say that's something of his impact too. Like how forgotten, forgotten in inverted commas was he really, it made headline news here headline news around the world right mm. and the reaction as you say in the twitter sphere and all of that from celebrities and fans alike but yes as always i went to his music for solace and just grateful that i could you know that there are so many great songs that you can just play and just go into that space you go into when you're you know having your private experience of david cassidy and, and his music just just yeah great solace as in the past it's given me great joy so joy solace you know yeah very um very tough time it wasn't just about the good-looking boy whose no. career and life we followed intensely it was about his music yeah i think so and if, can i just while i think of it too, i just want to make a gender observation you know that phenomenon that we've referred to a couple of times in this conversation that what I found when I came to Australia, that was actually uniquely an English experience. Because when I came to Australia, um, my contemporaries in high school, 14 and 15 year olds, girls and guys alike, liked David, didn't like David. It was no big deal. I no longer had to keep a secret that David Cassidy was my favourite singer. Mm. And guys wanted to, you know, not everyone, obviously, but a number of guys wanted to borrow my records because they could record them and listen to them and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, again, when we talk about impact, you know, I was, I'm always a bit bemused when you see, for example, um, 
Elvis Presley fans are going off to an Elvis Presley convention and there'll be just as many men as there are women and half the guys will be dressed up like Elvis Presley. And I, I, I know it's theatrical and it's fun, right? But nobody questions it. Nobody thinks, why do those guys like Elvis so much that they'll even dress up like him or try and emulate him? And, I, and, and, and so again, I come back to, to that point, you know, that his impact really did, as much as it could, transcend genders and transcend time. Whilst his fan base at a particular point in time was predominantly um, female, I think his enduring fan base was definitely much more broad than, than just that. And I hope, I, hope he, I hope he had a sense of it somewhere in his reckoning that he, he really had achieved something quite remarkable. Thank you, Philip, for letting us hear your David Cassidy connection. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you. If you have enjoyed this episode, tell your friends, share on social media, and I would love it if you subscribed. That way you can find out first when a new episode is available. Until we connect again, stay safe, take care of yourselves and each other.